Welcome back, everybody. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by, yes, you guessed it, Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts, all-round decent people, and uh, the only people you need to hire technical people in Edinburgh, the north of England, Bangkok, uh, and indeed Finland. Um, so get in touch if you are hiring or looking for work. Uh, they will sort you out. Thank you to them for uh everything they do for the show. On the show today, we have uh, Harsha Thak Bushnam. Uh, he is the head of data science at BGSS. Um, they're a Leeds-based technology consultancy. Um, they work on some pretty major projects uh, across public and private sector. Um, and Harsha is key to uh, everything they do in the world of data and AI. Um, so please give it up for Harsha. Thank you for coming on the show. First of all, Harsha, I appreciate you're a busy man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. So most people know by now, we always kind of start the show on education and kind of background um, kind of before you got into the world of data, if you like. Um, you've got quite an interesting, I suppose, kind of an interesting education and career. So uh, it should be quite good, actually. Um, so I think you started in electrical engineering, right? Uh, yes. So I think I'm, uh, I'm, I did probably what most of my generation in India does. So we get into some form of engineering. And so the thing that I chose at that point of time was uh, electronics and communication engineering. So I was more into the electronics part of it in the sense, how does how does a phone work? How, do I, how, how is a message that I send or how is a voice that I'd make actually travels like thousands of miles with, with only a few seconds delay and things like that. So I was quite uh, interested in that. So I started in my bachelor's as an electrical engineer, electronic communication. And then I went ahead and started doing a master's uh, from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst uh, in uh, electrical engineering, but with an emphasis on wireless communications. So I started doing that. It was, it was really, really fun. But what I realized was most of the stuff that I was studying there was around uh, applied mathematics. So it was more uh, information theory, uh, entropies, how does information get captured in one end, how much do you lose when you travel to the other, other end, signal processing, things like that. So after the first year, I sort of knew that my second year courses were quite tough. In a sense, they were quite uh, mathematical in nature. Uh, so I realized that, okay, and, and I was feeling very good, and I was doing very well in those courses as well. So I realized that I'm going to pursue a doctoral in uh, mathematics and sort of give away my engineering bit. So I enrolled in a master's program, which goes into a PhD program uh, at the same university. I did. I, I was thoroughly enjoying it. It was really fun. Uh, so I went through all of the courses, all the qualifiers, everything required. I was on course to actually start doing my PhD there. So I had like 3.99 GPA, which is obviously 0 0.1, 0 0.01 less than four, which is good. So I was, I was very, very happy. So I was really enjoying it. And then I applied and got into this uh, applied mathematics program, computational applied mathematics program in Austin, Texas. And that particular program in Austin, Texas is consistently ranked between the top 10 in uh, in their CAM programs, which is computational applied mathematics. So it, it was, and I joined the research facilities uh, as a uh, research and a teaching assistant. And then I continued on for like four years, uh, did uh, my PhD there, uh, did quite, happily and most of the work that i was doing uh, it was it was in the period 2004-2008 the work i was doing was around understanding uh, collision between uh, microscopic particles and how it impacts the uh, dynamics of a uh, larger system 
And the most important application of that is in nuclear reactors as well as vehicle reentries into the Earth's atmosphere when a shuttle comes in. And as you can understand, they are completely defense driven. So even though I was very keen on pursuing more pursuing in that in that area, uh, given my um, I mean it's not really a race thing. Given the ethnicity and the proximity to 9/11 and all that, obviously getting uh, clearance to do that was a big pain. So we we attempted to do that probably in the third the second semester of my third year just to see if that could work. But it wasn't going to work, so it was fine. So I started looking for industry jobs. So I joined this company called Approach Revenue Management that was in Houston. And they were a, and they still are a uh, pricing optimization leader for airlines and a lot of manufacturing and services industries within the US. <clears throat> and I joined the research and science division there uh, as a associate scientist and then was really, really enjoying it because it was it had nothing to do with what I'd actually learned or what my doctoral study was. So uh, it sort of put, it gave me a good idea as to um, it because it was a software. It gave me a good idea of how to approach building good software solutions, which have data in the center of them as well as which have any kind of machine learning models or statistic models uh, using that. So it gave me a good exposure because I was almost like a code or a query monkey for them for one and a half, two years, which means that obviously all the menial jobs are given to me or everything that I do is is, is there. Uh, so that gives me a good idea of getting very, very, very hands-on very quickly. And this was before Python was uh, really big or any of that. So what it meant was we had to create our own libraries, all the stuff that we standardly use or take, and take for granted within Python or R world. So those are the two big data science and machine learning uh, languages, right? But we had to build everything from scratch. So we had to. Uh, so I developed all of those things in C, uh, Visual Basic, as well as uh, Java. So it gave me a very good idea of actually building them from bottom up. Uh, I think from there, uh, all of that was in the US, and then from there we moved uh, to the UK, which is where my uh, family was. And then we decided that we lived in the US for a while. So I think it's probably we should split the difference between uh, traveling to India because traveling to India. From the US, from where we were, takes like 26 hours end to end, door to door. And that's a long time. <laughs> that, that's a long time, exactly. So you're we like, okay, that's fine. I mean, I've gotten the education, it's given me good stead and everything. So let, let, let's let's split the difference and move somewhere in the middle. And London, obviously, it's it's like uh, nine or 10 hours. So it's, it's much more manageable, right? So we moved here uh, and I was uh, I joined uh, Experian Football. So I uh, it's a business unit called Footfall, but it was uh, it is owned it was owned by Experian, uh, who do the credit scores and everything. And uh, this company, what it does is it actually owns most of the uh, cameras which count people coming in and out or walking in and out of probably ninety nine percent of the shopping centers and stores in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, which means that every every time some let's say for example. Uh, someone go walks through Westfield and their north entrance, entrance door number five, it would basically record if, if people have walked in, how many people have walked in and things like that at a 15 minute interval. So it was a very good thing. So they were going through a transformation project. So I was hired there to lead uh, building the machine learning elements into it and then make that the central beating heart kind of a thing for the rest of the uh, rest of their analytics product. So I started there. Uh, worked there for like five to six years. Again, it is one of those things wherein they were a complete Microsoft house, and every 
everything that we deploy had to be deployed into an Experian data center. And when you say you, you deploy into Experian data center, there are many, many logistical challenges. Needless to say, it would live, it could probably live in the same rack as yours or my credit scores and our, our employment histories and things like that. So it's extremely sensitive. So any kind of a change, any kind of a change log, any kind of a software has to go through quite a lot of regulation, many, many approvals. So that period of five to six years, again, gave me a new appreciation for if you, if you build a system, if you build a software solution on your own, it's different. But when you're trying to integrate it into a much wider uh, behemoth like Experian or any of the bank's financial systems, it's it's a different it's a different uh, challenge altogether. So that sort of gave me a good idea of how how do I take it from here to there. And again, one of the biggest things I like the left there was because they were a Microsoft house, and we had to write everything from scratch. Which means again, there was no Python, there was no R. So once once I, once I got there, another thing was again everything was to be developed from scratch. So I worked with a show team of ten people who are data engineers and data scientists with three people uh, in in my in the UK. Office. And we developed a solution under budget, well within time. Uh, uh, everything again developed from scratch, all of the algorithms and everything. And it was again a very good thing. So since then, I moved into BJSS, which is like four years ago. So just before we get to BJSS, um, you made my job very easy today, actually, which is good. One of the things I was going to say was, so um, you mentioned kind of in India uh, of your generation, you do some sort of engineering degree. Um, was it also... Or, or, or is it still kind of the done thing once you've done your bachelor's? Uh, do you try and get into a kind of UK or US university or did you decide to do that just because it was a great opportunity? Kind of what drove that? I think the very first move, that, that, that's actually a good question. Uh, the very first one was when I decided to actually apply for a master's program or even think of doing any sort of postgraduate study, I already had a job. So in a sense, uh, I was, I was I have, we had campus interviews and I was like, yeah, fine, I have a job, it's in the back. So my idea was to basically see if a master's would be something that I would be keen on. I have been quite academic growing up. So I was like, I'm not, I'm, I was very sure that I'm not going to stop at a bachelor's. I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do some kind of postgraduate study. So when I started applying to different universities, there was this very good opportunity in, in 2000, it was a very long time ago. In the the universities that I was applying to in the US, they were actually offering uh, assistantships in the sense they would pay for your education. Uh, you just have to pay very little, but they pay for your. Uh, I mean, they give you a monthly salary, take care of tuition fees and everything. So it was one of those things which I, I sort of looked at it, saying, if I know for a fact that I'm going to be doing a postgraduate study, and given my freshness out of uh, studying, if this gives me a good opportunity to actually do that, I could always come back probably after finishing my master's and sort of look for another job if I wanted to. So I, th th that was the main thing that I decided to do. Slightly wider, what happens in India is, even though many people would like to get into uh, graduate programs, the school, the university system there is, it needs quite a lot of overhaul. So there are, there are people who get in there, but then the actual competition to get into, the, the number of slots that you have available for the postgraduate studies there in India, are way, way less in comparison to, say, US. I had not looked at the United Kingdom at that point of time, uh, because uh, in, in India, the first thing I was looking at was where, is, where, are the, where are the biggest universities. So if I look at the biggest universities in the US, obviously in the UK, I'd say it probably would be Oxford and Cambridge and all that. I was like, I'm not going to get into those things, so I'm not going to worry about that. So I started looking at rankings in the US and then... 
Nice. And um, you kind of touched on the uh, like postdoctoral career after your PhD. Um, and uh, so I was going to ask you, was it a kind of possibility? You obviously said it was. It didn't work out in the end. But did, did you see the route of kind of working in academia, a post-industry, as something you potentially could have done for a long, long time? Or do you think you always would have kind of found your way into industry? Interesting question, because... Uh, when, I, when I was graduating, obviously, one of the first things I was looking for is just finding a job, which, which is the first thing, right? Yeah. So when I started looking for that, my first uh, instinct was to actually go into academia. So I got in touch with my previous, my, my advisors and other people who I had developed a contact and network with. And they were like, yeah, I, I think I could probably get into definitely a teachership, like a, like a teaching position in many universities. Uh, but what I wanted in that was, I wanted to get into an assistant professorship and that would lead to an associate and then sort of gives you a tenure um, and, and makes, makes your life much easier. Yeah. But then uh, the main thing that was motivating me was, to me, when I started speaking to some of the companies who were coming for campus placements uh, at, U, uh, at Austin, I was very much thrilled by the actual immediacy of application of all whatever we're doing to real life uh, cases. In academia, you obviously have a latency. So even if you work for the best research labs, unless you work for Apple or Google or uh, Dell or IBM, Watson, things like that, you wouldn't get an immediate, what do you say this, a feedback of, okay, I've developed this feature, I've written this paper, it's a novel technology. For it to actually get into the hands of a user, it takes probably a few years, if you're lucky, and decades normally, because it has to go through the rigors of that, right? So I was basically, when I was speaking to these companies on the campus interviews, they started sharing the actual stuff that they're doing and the latency or the delay it takes for them to develop something, research it, figure it out, and then sort of immediately apply it to the real world scenario. So it was it was less than six months or nine months or a year in most of the cases. So I was like very, very by that. And then I said, okay, I should do something in there. Nice. No, I like that. And it's something that's actually came up a few times that that kind of delay or lag in research or, or academia and for quite a lot of good reasons that happens for everyone but it's just difficult to you know get that immediacy like you said and um, you mentioned some interesting stuff that i hadn't kind of pulled out from from your linkedin but it's probably worth going over again so you said at pros um in houston and also um when you joined in the uk kind of both very different technology stacks and there was no python no r do you think that has now made you a kind of better data scientist and also meant it's, is it easier for you to kind of teach and grow your own data scientists now because they do have access to all these things? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's, a, that's a very, uh, because I think of it constantly. Because not a lot of other data scientists who probably are becoming data scientists or just got out of PhDs and want to become something, do something in data area in the last maybe four or five years. I don't think what they have as an opportunity is to develop those kinds of stacks or solutions or libraries from scratch. Because for me, that has, as I was saying, they have given me a huge appreciation of why does something work? So I'll take an example. So if you if you were to look at the implementations of a standard, in-code standard algorithms uh, from different libraries, whether it is in R or SAS or Python or anything, they could have completely different implementations. In the sense, the way you think that, say, for example, uh, a random forest should work in one would be completely different to the other. 
Now, by nature, there isn't a deterministic solution, which means that you, that you can't really say, I've given you the exact data, I should get the same tree across all of them, because it doesn't work that way. We know that. But then it, it sort of begs the question that there are, there are probably a thousand ways to skin the exact same cat, which means that you need to understand why something works, why something doesn't. You need to understand the nuances of why the implementation in one package is different to the other. And my experience of doing it for probably eight years continuously has given me an appreciation of actually going through a lot of the literature, a lot of the academic papers, a lot of the industry papers, uh, trying to develop everything from scratch. So you need to understand good software solutions as well. And that sort of has given me a better appreciation. And I personally think probably a better data scientist as well. Yeah, no, I, I totally would agree. And I think also it's quite nice that you have jumped from like a completely different technical solution. So you see it, you may probably see it more in software development than data science, where someone works for, I don't know, say a large financial services company as a Java developer, and then they'll move to another company as a Java developer, and then they'll do something else as a Java developer. So the technology is always evolving and they're getting better but they are kind of seeing the same problems. Whereas you obviously went from, you said, kind of doing things in C and, and uh, Visual Basic and then moving to a complete Microsoft house. So, I mean, it's completely different, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the whole journey has been, uh, my PhD uh, thesis, of it, all of the code was in C. When I joined Pros, it became Java and some sort of Visual Basic. Uh, and from there, it became uh, C Sharp because it was completely Microsoft house. And since then, it has probably been mostly Python. Yeah. And have you also been, maybe more recently as well, but did that mean you've also had different looks at the kind of changes in cloud computing as well? Like, or have you mostly looked at AWS, for example? No, I don't think we've looked at it. So when we initially started looking at it, uh, even within experience, when we were developing it, as you can understand, that is the prime uh, application for IoT because all it is is if you have an IP camera installed and or if you have an internet connection to the existing camera, which they already do, all it needs to do is just stream data from there. Instead of 15 minutes, it could do it every minute. So nothing stops it from doing it, right? But obviously, the reconciliation process are a, a bit more complex. So we started looking at that. And at that point of time, uh, we looked at Amazon Web Services. Azure was not big. They had they had Azure ML, but it was not really like a cloud thing. It was it was a website which could help you do machine learning. It wasn't really a cloud services provider. And Amazon Web Services was the first one that came into the market, and they were quite good. But they still had many many features not available for us to actually start using it. So since then, probably from 2014 2015, I also had the opportunity to sort of see the evolution or the pace of change with which. Uh, different cloud providers evolve and how they how they actually become leaders versus how they become laggers in terms of the whole thing. And yeah, so we looked at, so within BJS, obviously I worked with Amazon Web Services as well as Azure, a little bit with GCP, not a lot. I hope to do that more, but I think it's primarily around BJS and Azure, yeah. Yeah, no, that's nice. And I was going to say, actually, I didn't really think about this before the, the show, but with BJSS being a tech consultancy, they're relatively kind of, technology agnostic aren't they so the fact that you've managed to come from kind of c java c sharp a little bit of microsoft azure a little bit of aws like that, that probably fits quite well with your experience as well absolutely absolutely i agree so because we are tech agnostic it sort of gives it when i speak to clients i'm uh, so like it's made me a little bit made my life easier uh, the journey i've taken 
in actually trying to sort of uh, relate to say business stakeholders because I, I do love talking and understanding the business problems and translating them to actual machine learning exam questions. At the same time, I can actually speak to the technology people as well, whether it is IT people or data engineers or any one of them. And when they speak of something, I, I can relate to them. I may not be able to be, uh, I probably am not fully hands-on, say for example, like launch or developer, but I can understand if they, if they say that this is a restriction that I find. I, yeah. I, I can get to that. So, yeah, no, I think that's really, really helpful. Obviously, in the job you do, but I think also you probably get a lot more um, kind of buy-in and, and respect as a consultant when you aren't you aren't just going in trying to really like hammer IBM Watson down their throats. Like maybe that's not the best solution. And obviously, because you can talk in multiple different kind of languages, if you like. Um, it must make it a little bit easier. But I suppose getting to, so yeah, February 2016, joining BGSS, um, where you're the head of data science, right? That's kind of your title. Yeah, yeah. that is it. And we just touched on the fact that they're a, a kind of tech consultancy. So um, when you joined, uh, well, yeah, just uh, four, and, four and a bit years ago, what was the kind of remit? And has it changed at all? Uh, so, so the good thing was, uh, yeah, before, so the whole data, I don't think it was not even a capability. It was more like people can deal with data. So I think that particular group, the BJS has started hiring for that probably in October, November of 2015. So that was the, that was the first hire we had. Uh, so they hired one guy, uh, and then I interviewed with them. So my interview process was all finished by end of November. But obviously, given given my role in Experian, I had like a three month notice period. So obviously, I had to wait for three months to actually join them. Uh, so basically, when I joined in February, so we had, uh, including me, three data scientists. So it was just three people, uh, and we were sort of point of contacts for across everything or everyone in the company. At that point of time, it was probably 600 people. Right now, it's at 1,500. Can't even imagine that. So for all of them, for most of the technologies, if, they, if there was anything to, with, uh, to do with data, whether it's data analysis or anything, they would immediately reach out to us. So the first and foremost thing that we needed to do, or the original discussions were, we need to build a capability, which means we need to not only grow our headcount, but we need to grow headcounts at different levels of experience. So people with less experience, we need to basically make sure that they have opportunities to, or they, have, they have learning pathways, for or they have, uh, or they are given quite a lot of uh, guidance and hands-on uh, help as and when required to make them into good data scientists. At the same time, we need people with a slightly different levels of experience or higher levels of experience to mentor these people because obviously everyone can't go through me or the other guy all the time. So we basically had an idea of trying to grow the team first because typically what happens is once you go to a particular stage, you don't do hiring unless you have a project in hand in consulting business. Uh, but initially, because people were, uh, were quite open-minded within the organization, we were able to get away with actually having quite a lot of good data scientists without hands-on projects. And we were using every resource available to actually win projects at the point of time. So 2016 was very interesting because we, we pitched for quite a lot of projects, data science and machine learning stuff. We won a few of them, but I think end of 2016, 2017, the whole thing changed and we currently, it just started growing. We, we hired quite a lot. We used to hire before COVID. Uh, we hire quite a lot and we have quite a lot of projects as well. So from when I joined, it was three people. And right now, I think we have 29 people. Wow, that's amazing. And that's across um, all different sites, right? So kind of Leeds, Manchester, London, I think there's Bristol uh, and some of Scotland as well. 
absolutely so we we uh, we had like few prospects in bristol as well as in manchester and leeds so we did look for uh, we did we did have like two data scientists in manchester uh, but then they they decided to go a different direction uh, bristol we have like really good data projects but then obviously we resourced it from london but obviously we're looking to hire there as well once yeah. the whole covid mania stops <laughs> yeah, I had uh, Katie Gibbs on the show actually a few weeks ago. I know you know her. Was it a challenge when you went in? And even maybe now, but uh, the team is so much bigger now, it'll probably be different. But kind of when you first started with those other three guys, is it a challenge for you to kind of get people to see BGSS as a company that can really offer high level data, machine learning, AI solutions? as well as what they're already known for, which was like really, really, really good software, agile project delivery, where like BGSS have just got this name of being like an excellent delivery partner for agile and software projects. Um, so was it difficult to differentiate or was it easy to just kind of like bolt on data science? That, that's actually an excellent question because, so uh, I'll tell you the, the biggest challenge there for me when we initially joined was obviously BJSS, as you said, a very, very strong engineering platform. And so the first approach was we are we, we already have a lot of clients. Within the clients, can we actually start engaging with the senior stakeholders and actually telling them that we now have a data capability as well, which means that we could probably do some of the data science, data engineering bits, visualization stuff as well. So they don't so that they don't need to go elsewhere for that. So we started doing that. But at the same time, uh, I was always keen on trying to get new clients, purely data clients and nothing to do with uh, what we had. I think it was probably uh, on on two things. One was probably an ego boost in the sense, yeah, we should, because we are a data capability, we should be able to get stuff independently on data stuff. And the second thing was most of the clients that we had, they already, some of them collected lots of, lots of data, but they were not ready in terms of maturity of actually engaging with the data engineering or the data science team. Because many of these things, uh, start from the fact that if you have all of your data in disparate places, and if you go speak to a client, they're going to be very, very thrilled that you're speaking to them. But at the end of the day, they're going to be like, I can't really help you guys, even though I want to, because all of my data is in like 10 different places. And without getting them into a single place, I can't really do any data projects. I'm not going to get the funding. It doesn't look good. So the challenge was it, it was dual. So uh, part of this strong uh, engineering uh, teams within BGSS, they were helping build data warehouses, data lakes, or single points of data. Uh, so we had to wait for those companies to sort of mature so that we can then go and go ahead and say, oh, while you're doing that, why don't you have a look at this? And we can do probably do a POC, things like that. So it was it was challenging. So it, it had both of them had challenges. Uh, going to our existing clients had its own challenges, so it was easier because we could obviously uh, piggyback on the success of what BGSS is. Uh, and but on the other side, when you're looking for independent work on machine learning and data science, it was quite challenging because many companies would not even know who BJSs are uh, because we are a very very small company. We are not the big four tech consulting firm that everyone would have heard of. Yeah, do you find that that sometimes plays into your strengths as well? This is probably across the business, not just in data. But d does it sometimes help that you're not the big four tech company or the consultancy companies? Because there is some kind of negative connotations along with some of those companies, but also you have the kind of, I don't know, the advantage that there's like kind of true expertise there. It's not a, you're not just kind of like a large, we'll do any project type organization. 
Absolutely. So I think one of the things which we have definitely done is, uh, as part of, as part of being the on-site consultant for many of the clients, I have I have been able to actually represent the organization in their vendor talks with external vendors like any of the big firms or any of the other uh, big tech consulting firms. And the general perception is that the way most of the BJSS people behave, they probably behave more like a permanent employee and not really as a consultant. So they they never so that has given us quite a good kind of rep in the sense that we are very well trusted. We hire really good technologists. We we don't skimp out on them. And when we say it's a data scientist, they actually are a data scientist. I I know some of the people that I've worked alongside the big four companies in some of the uh, at a bank. They're not really data scientists. They're probably data analysts, but they are getting billed uh, probably twice as much as we are uh, under the name of data scientist, and they are actually learning on the job, which is perfectly fine. Learning on the job is absolutely the right thing to do, but then they're actually learning basics, which they should probably already should be quite aware of in the job. Yeah, I think uh, I would say that it actually has played to our advantage, as you said, because uh, most of these big names have baggage associated with them. Uh, and they have they have sort of a neutral to a negative rep at times, uh, whereas EJSS because we are new we could actually start educating them that these are the things that we've done and we could only and we make it a point to only use the stuff that we have done and not try to sell snake oil at any point of time. Yeah, and I think that's a big. I mean, I maybe now more than when you very first started the capability because it was maybe still kind of at the infancy across the UK, like 2014, 2015, that kind of like real big data science projects. I think now in 2020, there's a lot of, uh, like you said, snake oil salesmen when it comes to when it comes to data. And I suppose, I think um, when Karen and, I, Karen and I spoke about doing the podcast, um, she mentioned some of the projects or, or kind of some of the potential use cases that have been around kind of more recently. So um, depending on how much you want to go into it, but where does kind of AI come into the business and kind of what kind of things have you guys been working on? So I think uh, because it's just, uh, so I'm using the word just because in terms of the whole technology thing, four years is not a lot, but in terms of anything to do with machine learning or data science, four years is like uh, an, a complete age of things. Yeah. So, uh, so I'll say that some of the interesting things that we've been working on, they have actually gone, uh, so, so we've done stuff in quantum computing. We've done stuff uh, with product recommendations uh, which you probably, as, as a data science team, you don't get put in charge to do quite a lot of. Uh, at the same time, we have helped uh, build data capabilities for a bank as well as a commodities company uh, from scratch to their current sizes of around 100, 150. So we've actually started with them on the journey of uh, how do you actually create a good process for implementing a data science project? Uh, how do you how do you no, not recruit, but how do you look for the right kind of skill sets to actually grow the team? Uh, how do you take, uh, how do you convince the stakeholders and actually putting more money and creating champions for your data projects? So taking a uh, taking a simple exam question, delivering it fully, and then showing that this is the way to do it, and then coming up with a, a pattern which is repeatable and reusable across different projects. So we've taken and gone through that journey quite a lot. So I think uh, in that sense, it's been quite helpful. And some of the interesting things that we worked on in the recent past are probably around uh, reservoir modelings and things like that. In the sense, how do you? We we have a team who the commodities and oil company who have helped identify that company. What is 
what are the different parameters they should be looking for when they're actually doing oil drilling uh, or well drilling within a reservoir. So I know, I know it's, 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 it sort of has ethical issues, but then the, uh, it's an interesting data science problem. And we were able to actually cut down their, uh, how do you say this, the review process from a, probably a week to 10 days to probably within within a few hours. And earlier used to basically look at all of the data available for a particular reservoir for like, a, they had to run simulations. And when you talk about actual uh, competition fluid dynamic simulations, they take a very, very long time. They had to run through all of those things for like a week or so before they could agree that okay, that particular well should be drilled now, because I think that has the highest chance of actually getting something. We built a machine learning model and worked with them hand in hand, uh, and that sort of helped them cut it down to probably less than a, less than half a day. In the sense, now they can run the simulation, they can play with the parameters and say, oh, okay, now it, may, it makes sense, let's go and do something there. So it has been there. We've looked at like a benefits use case in the sense, looked at the applications filled up for different benefits cases and analyzed to see if people are actually getting the right amount of support and benefits. And if sometimes they're not getting the right amount of support, whether it is good or bad, over or under, and then sort of uh, helping the organization which looks after those benefits cases in flagging up which of these auditors or which of these people might be making that mistake. So maybe they need a bit more, they need to be a bit more informed, a bit more trained, like that. So we've done that uh, as part of a bank currently. We have been working to uh, identify people who enter financial difficulty like 90 or 120 days ahead of uh, them actually entering the financial difficulty status, uh, which means that that will be key, very, very important under COVID circumstances as well, because many people have taken payment holidays. And uh, unfortunately, after furlough, some or a big chunk of them, unfortunately, would be uh, would have to let go of the job, which means that they will enter a very severe financial distress. So if you're able to identify those markers, like maybe 60 or 90 days ahead of time, then at least the bank could mentally be prepared and they could have the right operational resources to support them. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I'm already saying there's been something on the kind of NHS COVID side as well. Yes, I mean, on with NHS, we've actually started a few interesting data projects. So one of the teams is actually working with the University of Cambridge, and they're, they're basically helping, I think if I'm not wrong, they're looking at a unified way of accumulating or what is that? I think it was more about making sure that the test results are available on time. Mm. That was one thing. And also looking at scheduling and logistical aspects of when and how many tests should, should be scheduled. Not really about forecasting, because I think for taking tests, I think there isn't any demand forecasting required, but it's more of in this area, how many do you need? In this area, how many do you need? Those kinds of problems as well. So we just started doing that probably four to six weeks ago. Nice. And a few people I've spoken to do feel like having the focus on kind of data and trying to do some sort of kind of prediction work will actually be a really big help in the whole kind of coronavirus suppression just looking at the test data and trying to work things out you kind know of using the techniques that you guys would be using anyway right yeah absolutely absolutely i think uh, it's very helpful i think it, it also it's one of those use cases whether it's uh, the um, you're looking at impact of coronavirus from an nhs point of view or as well as a bank's point of view because those sort of uh, touch real lives, not that other things don't. I've seen people being more motivated to do these things than on the, in addition to being motivated to do commercial ones, this have an additional thing of saying, okay, you're doing something good, something better for everyone and you can impact it, right? So I think that's one of the things which has been quite uh, good to see as well. And I forgot to mention the other interesting thing that we have done was uh, we looked at, uh, we created a, 
quite a quite quick prototype of looking at all of the academic literature on uh, COVID-19. So it was a problem posted on Kaggle. And we looked at actually creating a solution. We created a solution which would look through all of those uh, literature and then figure out and answer any questions based on, uh, okay, what, what is the best way of preventing COVID from spreading? So, and it will look at all of the literature and say, yeah, this is one of these things, social distancing, doing this and that. Uh, but the main purpose of that was understanding what the future trends of drug design or survey design or the future direction that the academics uh, predict. So I think those are the things also you can extract from those things. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And I suppose jumping off a little bit of kind of exactly what BGSS are doing, but maybe more back to what you've done, I suppose, in the last two roles in the UK. So do you have anything that you kind of focus on or any kind of tips you would give to someone um, when it comes to building those kind of high-performing data teams I mean, arguably from scratch when you were at BGSS, but also kind of in your last role as a lead data scientist. Do you have anything that you can really recommend when hiring for people in data? The first thing I would say is have don't go in in an interview or looking for people with a standard set of questions. I would I would say that's the first thing, because there isn't there isn't a standard data scientist, there isn't a standard machine learning practitioner. I, I think if it were if it, if the same thing was probably eight or nine years ago, I would say, no, look for computer science people who have exposure to algorithms, machine learning. I, I could have said that. But given the actual evolution of the libraries, given the evolution of the languages themselves, like Python and R, I don't think that is a necessity. So what I would definitely say is anyone who's trying to interview or trying to uh, get interviewed, they should probably be looking at uh, backing up everything that is written in the CV. You don't need to emphasize or embellish anything. Just just look at what you've done. Make sure that you understand the gap, if there is a gap in you applying for a particular job in the, in the data science world, which most of the people have. Uh, and then just keep in mind that there isn't a single version of a data scientist. There, there isn't someone you can actually pick out of the market. I think with the right amount of training, uh, data science is one of those things. Uh, you, If you have hands-on experience, it's good. Uh, but then there are many, many angles of being a data scientist. It's actually stakeholder management is a big, big thing in it. And good software development is another big thing in it. And then algorithms and modeling is a third big thing in it. But primarily underlying all of that has to be a passion for looking at data, understanding all of the challenges within data. How do you address, how do you use data as a tool or a lever to, to deliver something? So I think that's, that's the bit that I would suggest that be ready to understand that there's a huge stakeholder management bit. There's a software development, which is equally important, and then the modeling and algorithm technical stuff as well. So it's almost like a third in terms of that. I like that. And so there's no kind of one size fits all. Sure, I think you're bang on. And it's come out quite a lot in this podcast, actually, the importance of kind of stakeholder management or kind of just being able to speak to the business. I've said it before, and people are probably bored of hearing it, but I don't really think there's a shortage of really talented data scientists in the UK. I think that there's just really bad hiring. And like you said there, if you've got the passion for like making or working with data to, to understand it and make it kind of something a business can understand or another person can understand, there's so many really good people who've come out of physics degrees or they've worked in a company which handles lots of data, like they maybe just haven't had the opportunity. So I like that you said about the kind of training piece, like you can train someone if they've got kind of a few of those pillars that you just mentioned. Yep, absolutely. And I think the main reason why uh, some of us, there's an outburst of uh, a burst of people in physics is because 
uh, Python was heavily influenced uh, in its early development and everything, not just by software developers, but physicists. And a lot of them have really fast moving data, huge volumes of data, so they understood that. So there was an explosion of people there. But if you think about it, if you think about actually what people uh, in quotes should be doing as a data scientist, most of that should fall in the realm of computer science, but it doesn't. Because oh, I think the toolkit supports a wide diversity of people. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've found uh, speaking to different clients and working with different clients, that if you have a very varied background, uh, in a sense, you come from, say, biotechnology, doesn't really matter. Uh, but you understand and you know how to write code and you understand what data looks like, what is good, what is bad. I think bringing a perspective from different angles has been the biggest appreciation that many people have had. So when, when I was working for this uh, uh, air traffic controller, when we were working with them, one of the biggest feedback that we got was it's good for them to actually hear from people who have worked in retail and financial services and other things because they would never have actually thought about the, about a solution the way we described it if they were only speaking to the industry SMEs. Yeah. They're basically, it's not, it's not the lack of, it's not a lack of will, it's a lack of exposure. I think um, I actually had exactly the same conversation yesterday where there's a, a company who focused really strongly on one particular business area um, and they're ideally looking to add someone in with the same experience to the team in a quite a senior position. But one of the people I spoke to, um, I think yesterday, uh, said that like, maybe they'd be better getting someone from like retail or financial services or something like that because maybe a solution that you've delivered in retail, although it's not the same problem, the solution actually might still be very similar. Um, so instead of getting the same exact responses all the time or the same kind of method all the time, it's actually not a bad thing to try and uh, kind of, I don't know, diversify the team a little bit or get somebody who's never never worked in your industry before but understands data, for example. Yep, exactly. I think that, that that's, a, that's a valid point. One of the things which especially in our hiring or I've looked at successful data teams is that you need to have a, a healthy mixture of individual contributors in a sense who are probably laser focused on certain areas. So they might be completely laser focused on engineering, but they, they, but they have a computational degree so they understand modeling as well. On the other hand, you might have some people who completely are devoted to algorithms, uh, and but there are some other people who are really good, who have a computational background, understand data, but they are more they are themselves when they're actually speaking to a client. They are themselves when they're speaking to other people, understanding the problem. So I think you need to have a mixture of people because different people have different ambitions. Some people might never ever want to approve a timesheet. They might never ever want to go down to another person uh, and discuss with them as to what is it, what's good for them and what's bad for them. Some people might just be fully laser focused on, okay, I want to do this. I want to be, be the best in this, and which is perfectly fine. And you need people like that because those are the people who actually add expertise to the wider team. But at the same time, you need to have a healthy mix of that as well as people who have uh, career aspirations as well in a different way. It, it won't affect the pay because end of the day, it's it's primarily decided by how much time and what sort of delivery and what sort of success you deliver in terms of the projects that you do. So I don't think it's to do with the pay. It's actually to do with the type of role that you want to pursue there. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And of course, last point, we're obviously in the middle of, of COVID and, and things seem to be slowly kind of coming back. Is there is there kind of big plans for the rest of the year and next year for the data team at BGSS? We 
I mean, in in terms of in terms of plants, we had a plot of plants, and the plants have sort of popped, and they're sort of reigniting right now. So I think we have some really really interesting projects in in our pipeline. All of them are sort of uh, a few of them are actually waiting in approval, and one of them might be kicked off in a few weeks' time. And uh, these projects are quite, uh, I would say, technically very interesting and challenging as well. So some of them are around computer vision. Uh, some of them are in NLP, and some of them are forecasting. So I think there's like four or five different companies that we're constantly speaking to, and they're like, okay, they're, they're just waiting for approval from our senior stakeholders to actually get this kicked off. So I would say we have big plans. Uh, we need to hire, but we are waiting for the right mixture of projects to hire as well. Because one of the things that uh, I've realized, uh, which I take for granted, but I've realized is uh, when you join a tech technology consulting company, especially in this fluid area of data, even though there's a lot of demand on paper in the market, when it actually comes to translation, you need to put a lot of effort to actually take that project and translate it into, sorry, take that opportunity to translate it into a project. And there is, there is a time that people may not be working on an active project, which is the period called as a bench. Yeah. People are not aware of being on a bench and what it might, what they could actually use it for or what sort of impact it has on them. So I think what I realized is some people actually join the comp join BJSS or any other technology company thinking that they're going to be on project from day one. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Is that uh, you need to have you need to understand that there is a bench concept and that's something that I emphasize quite a lot during the recruitment process because it comes as a shock to people when they after they join. So because earlier I used to think that I used to take it for granted that everyone knows knows what a bench is. Yeah. Whether you get it from the sports metaphor or if you know people who actually work in technology uh, consulting firms or consulting firms, I, I assume that people understood it, but no. So I think that's one of the things that needs to be there. So I think in terms of plans and ambition, there is, uh, we're just waiting to see what sort of actual economic impact COVID does, which I think might start in October. And yeah. people actually start seeing the strong wave of recession hit. Yeah. I uh, know that makes sense. Uh, and a lot of companies are in a similar boat that we speak to. It's kind of like keep doing what they're doing just now. And uh, and when these new projects kick off, then they can kind of decide what's next. So that makes sense. And then just to finish on then, where is the best place to, uh, I suppose, find you on social media and kind of um, follow any BJSS updates as well? Do, do you mostly kind of use LinkedIn or is there something else? I, from my point of view, I think I constantly use LinkedIn. Um, I mean, I... Nice. And most of the updates of BJSS, I think we're quite active on LinkedIn as well. I think yeah. there are areas that probably Karen has much better idea as to how we how we how we spread the word around BJSS. But I think LinkedIn is probably the primary thing. Yeah, nice. Okay. Well, when I when we get this posted, I will tag uh, you and BJSS um, and Karen, um, and we can share it around, and people can follow you guys and uh, and just see what's going on um, when it's all posted. Sure. Fantastic. Thank you. Nice. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate the time. And it'll be cool to see what you guys are doing maybe in, uh, in a few months' time. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, Liam, for your time. Uh, that was a fun one. It was good to sit down. Um, we had some technical issues at the start, um, but we got there. So, um, as you can tell from listening, Hush has a really interesting career, um, starting over in India um, from a kind of education point of view and then moving to the States and then to the UK. Um, and obviously with BGSS, they're doing some pretty interesting work. Um, it sounds like they have some interesting things in the pipeline, um, so keep an eye out for, for those. A thank you to all of you for listening um, and again to Cathcart Associates for making it all possible. We'll be back 
back very soon with another episode. Uh, but until then, take care and speak soon.